Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You've tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, episode 60, Good Omens. Welcome back, everybody, to the podcast. It's Mike and Dave with you once again. And this episode of Sci-Fi Fidelity is all about a novel adaptation that has been a long time coming, and I'm so happy it's finally here. Just dropped on May 31st on Amazon Prime Video. That's Good Omens, a Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett novel. And who better to tackle personifications of death and, you know, demons and angels than those two. I mean, that's a perfect pairing. And since Neil Gaiman was involved in the production, it pretty much was one of the most faithful adaptations I've ever seen. Yeah. And for me, even though I've had difficulty getting into the novel American Gods, I still haven't seen the show. I I love Lucifer, which is, of course, a a Neil Gaiman byproduct. I guess it's fair to say Uh, (laughs) that's a good name for it. Right. And then he's certainly written a number of episodes for Doctor Who, which I've loved. So I don't know what it is about American Gods. But as you said, if Neil Gaiman can't do it, nobody can. (laughs) Exactly. He's the expert at this kind of stuff. And for those who are not aware of the history of this adaptation, in 1990, before American Gods, before Neverwhere, there was Good Omens, this collaboration with Terry Pratchett, which combined the whimsical metaphysics and fantasy of the Discworld author with the often glib personifications of supernatural beings or concepts that made Neil Gaiman famous in the Sandman comics. So really, I believe this was his first novel, his first collaboration, certainly, on a novel after he did all the comics for Vertigo. And what a great novel this was. It was kind of in the same vein as Douglas Adams. And I think uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was right around that same time. So it kind of had that feel where the narrator has a lot of the best jokes, (laughs) you know. But Good Omens tells the story of the arrival of the Antichrist, which heralds Armageddon. Only an angel named Aziraphale, played by Michael Sheen, and a demon named Crowley, played by David Tennant. They have grown used to life on Earth among humans and even developed a bit of a fondness for each other since leaving the Garden of Eden all those many years ago. And so they don't want the end of Earth, of life on Earth to come, right, David? Yeah. Something that informs their decision from the very start of the miniseries. Right. And uh, you said David Tennant's character is Crowley, and it is for a while. (laughs) Yeah, it's Crowley at first, right? Right. And then it becomes Crowley because Crowley was a little bit too snake-like. Right. Because he was that original serpent. But yeah, it's interesting. These two really carry the series. Is that fair to say, Dave, that Michael Sheen and David Tennant are really the anchors big time of this series? Well, yeah. And again, a lot like Lucifer, uh, 
David Tennant's character, Crowley, it's he wants to be bad, but he I guess has been around Aziraphale <laughs> too long and the good's rubbing off and and of course some of the bad's rubbing off because Aziraphale is more concerned with buying antique books and and fine dining and good wine and all of these things on earth exactly he loves his car the bentley you know so as luck would have it the baby antichrist is accidentally switched for the wrong baby at the convent and the resulting mayhem is what leads to these unexpected results throughout the series and it sounds like a strange topic to have for a comedy but it is very funny and just a very British humor style to it. And it's definitely one of the most faithful adaptations I've ever seen, like I said. In fact, uh, in my review, my spoiler-free review on Den of Geek, I did criticize it for maybe being a little bit too faithful, perhaps, because it did try and shoehorn in some of the narrator jokes and some of the scenes that could have just as easily been left out. And just one example of that is like the clandestine meetings in St. James Park and talking about the ducks preferring Russian black bread because of all the, you know, MI5 and, and and KGB agents who have met there. I don't know that that really is necessary for the story. And there were a few examples like that, that they wanted to bring it in from the book. And it never would have been there had this just been written as a, as a screenplay. So still, those who enjoyed the book especially are going to really enjoy the adaptation because of its faithful nature. So... Hopefully we just won't lose some of the people that are like, well, why, why was that scene there? <laughs> you know, but we're going to talk about the first two episodes in our spoiler free area here. And then when we get to the spoiler zone, we'll go over some overall impressions and some of the highlights of the avoidance of Armageddon. But episode one is called in the beginning, as you might imagine, makes sense. We hear the narrator. This is kind of a, a cool idea that they came up with Francis McDormand plays the voice of God, which basically replaces the narrator, but also provides a reason why we might have this omniscient third person talking over top of the action. Okay. And for me, having not read the novel, that that's not only interesting, but it makes a lot of sense. And, and again, as you might expect, she's wonderful. Yeah. And she needs to be there because there's so many jokes from the book that aren't from the dialogue. So, you know, it does make episode one a bit exposition heavy. I don't think they really could have avoided that. But one new addition that wasn't in the book that I thought was great was Gabriel, played by John Hamm. And what they did is, along with Duke Haster on the demon side, they had these two characters act as unsullied overseers. And by unsullied, I mean they weren't colored by their experience on earth because they didn't spend as much time down there as Aziraphale and Crowley did. So they are holding the angel and the demon accountable somewhat during these uh, troubling end times. And I thought that was a, that was a good decision. That was a good narrative device to use. Well, right. And who doesn't like John Hamm? Yeah, he was brilliant in this. And uh, we had a couple of elements of character development in this first episode. And so we get a flavor for what we're dealing with right from the start. And Crowley is called to pick up the Antichrist in a basket. And he doesn't seem all that excited at the prospect that the end has begun. And we can see why almost from the start. But what I think is interesting about this whole 
comedy of errors that ensues in season in episode one is that it's not like Crowley was being deliberate in making the mistake, even though he set it on its path by assuming that the man standing outside the convent was someone that he could discuss what he was supposed to do with the baby with instead of just some innocent father waiting on his baby to be born. So I thought that was interesting in terms of who is to blame for all this from the very beginning. Well, right. Because when you look at the monumental impact this is going to have on the human race, his cavalier attitude as he comes up to the convent, as you said, is what really leads to the comedy of errors. And while he's not directly responsible, he kind of is. Right. So, and and we'll talk about in the spoiler zone, uh, a possible reason for that. But basically the plan is to have this order of satanic nuns called the chattering order of St. Beryl, They're supposed to have arranged to have an American diplomat's wife, Harriet Downing, have her baby here in the convent so that they can switch the child out for the Antichrist. And then he will be raised in a diplomat's home, which presumably would make him more predisposed to bring about the end times because of his political placement, I guess you could say. But a young couple from a nearby town are also having a baby. And because the baby came a week early, the nuns were not expecting this couple to arrive. And obviously the antichrist gets switched with their baby instead of the diplomats baby. And it's completely undiscovered by anyone except the audience. Right. And the naming sequence of the two children is just great. Yeah. I don't know how they convinced uh, Harriet Downing to name her child warlock, but (laughs) Adam is certainly a a much more apt choice for the actual Antichrist. But later, uh, Crowley has to deliver this bad news to Aziraphale, of course, because he's quite alarmed because they don't want to just go back to being in heaven and hell. They like Earth. (laughs) So they have 11 years until the child comes into his power, and that's it. So I think it's kind of cool the plan they came up with because, you know, if it's the Antichrist, I guess... Originally, the plan would just be to have a demon tutor that would kind of show him the ropes, and that's it. But Crowley makes this agreement with Aziraphale that both of them will insinuate themselves into the household of the American diplomat. And Crowley has this great disguise as the nanny. David Tennant uh, really looks good in drag, I must say. And Aziraphale becomes the gardener. So Clearly, they're on the wrong target, but it still was a good plan on their part, I think. Right. And when you get down to it, this is all about nature versus nurture. Right. And one has to wonder what would have happened if they had executed this plan on the correct Antichrist. Would it have made a difference? I don't know. It's, It's not something we can speculate on, but it really doesn't even have much of an influence on Warlock. So, so who knows what would have been, but by the time the antichrist is 11, his hellhound will come and be named. And apparently this is the signal that he is coming into his full power and the war is about to start. And, you know, even Aziraphale, he tells Gabriel about what he's doing and how he's trying to exercise his, heavenly influence on the antichrist and they think that's an admirable thing that you're doing but you know 
we'll be here for you when you fail because you will inevitably fail. This isn't about changing things for the host of heaven. They just want the war to start because they are confident that they're going to win. And Aziraphale is standing in the way of that if he wants to keep Armageddon from happening, happening altogether. So it's interesting that it's not just hell that wants to have the uh, apocalypse happen. It's also heaven. Yeah. But uh, what did you think about the hellhound being named dog in order to tell it its true nature and what it would be at the side of the Antichrist? Well, it's just the contrast because he couldn't be a sweeter young boy. And the hellhound, when we first see him, is the quintessential hellhound. And of course, that's not what he ends up being, which certainly made my wife happy. And she loved (laughs) the first two episodes, by the way. She was a little bit mad that I told her I watched more without her. (laughs) Yeah, she'll enjoy that, I'm sure. But I think the whole idea was that the Antichrist would have named the hellhound something very menacing, and then it would become that thing, whatever he called it. And since Adam named his dog Dog, then the hellhound became a dog (laughs) and started to enjoy his life as one as well. So an interesting opening episode. Uh, This book has a lot of characters to introduce. And so episode two actually dives into a completely different angle, even as that story with the Antichrist continues, because we meet and hear the history of the nice and accurate prophecies of Agnes Nutter, which from her descendant, Anathema Device, who, as it turns out, is a witch herself and knows that her ancestor, Agnes Nutter, was really the only true prophet that ever existed. So all of the prophecies that Agnes Nutter came up with, including ones about the end times, are completely true and you just have to know how to interpret them. So this is a concept that obviously will steer certain other players into the apocalypse. For what purpose? I'm not sure to to just observe it or to have the prophecies fulfilled. I'm not sure. Obviously, it turns out that there's some interference that they are able to affect. But it's interesting that they bring about these prophecies and, and anathema device has been raised learning them by heart. And she moves to Tadfield, which is Adam's neighborhood in Great Britain, to be there for the end times. But but that seems to be it for her character. She's just being present because of the prophecies saying she should be present. Right. And then what about Newton Pulsifer? Uh, I mean, look, <laughs> between him and Sergeant Shadwell. Um, yeah, this, this concept of the Witchfinder army it seems like it doesn't fit at first because the Witchfinder army, kind of a, a outdated concept that you could say is not necessary in this modern age, but Sergeant Shadwell is kind of like a conspiracy theorist who carries on a tradition, a long tradition, despite the Witchfinder army having shrunk to just one himself. And so Newton Pulsifer, who is a descendant, coincidentally, of the man who burned Agnes Nutter at the stake 300 years ago, is someone who failed at his career because every piece of technology that he touches breaks. And so he kind of blunders his way into the offices of the Witchfinder army and gets drafted as a private. 
But the thing is, he actually ends up being pretty good at his job, <laughs> oddly enough. Yeah, and as much as I like Michael McKean, I I wasn't thrilled with this aspect of episode two. But again, Michael McKean's so great that he was able to pull it off. Right, and his neighbor actually is a fortune teller and part-time madam, <laughs> a dominatrix, you might say, named Madam Tracy, played by Miranda Richardson. And I tell you, the the two of them, being such seasoned actors, really play well off of each other. And so you do actually grow. Uh, like the accent was a little off-putting for me, Michael McKean's character at first. But you get used to it, you know, and, and they do start to grow on you over time. And then another group of characters we are introduced to in episode two are Adam Young's friends, because the Antichrist has grown up without any celestial influence and so has made neighborhood friends, Pepper, Wensleydale, and Brian. And they all have such vivid imaginations and know-it-all attitudes. They feel like they know everything about everything, and they hear that a witch has moved into town, and so they start playing at the Spanish Inquisition and burning witches and even run into Anathema in town at one point as they're getting ready to torture their first victim, which is by means of a tire swing. So, you know, it's, it's very playful, but at the same time, um, thematically very serious since we know who Adam Young really is. Right. Yep. But, you know, Crowley and Aziraphale have just discovered their, their mistake because they were watching for the hellhound to show up at Warlock's birthday party and the hellhound did not show. So they realized something went wrong so they go to the convent to investigate because clearly there was an error made way back when. This is one of those diversions that I feel like maybe did, wasn't really necessary because Sister Mary, one of the inept satanic nuns, has converted the the old convent into a, uh, what do you call that, team building exercise kind of place for businessmen. And they're playing paintball while she hands over the records that will help them figure out where Adam is. And, you know, it just kind of plays as a little bit silly, but it also allows Crowley to exercise a little bit of demonic influence over his surroundings, which is kind of fun. But I think the real purpose of them getting out there to Tadfield was so that they could hit Anathema while she's on her bike and accidentally steal the Book of Prophecies, which uh, Aziraphale is able to identify as a very precious book that there's only one copy of in the entire world. He's heard of it, but never found a copy of it. And he calls Tadfield 666 on a whim and realizes that he has found the missing Antichrist. As he says, sorry, right number. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, the episode has only one other distinction, and that is it introduces us to the first of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, War. And was it surprising to you to see Mireille Enos in that uh, role, Dave? <laughs> well, I would like to say, yes, I was surprised, but I had looked at IMDb beforehand. So <laughs> I knew so to knew expect her. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But she was great. And uh, all of the horsemen receive their tools of the trade via FedEx delivery in very comedic fashion. And so we'll talk a little bit about the four horsemen to start off our spoiler zone, but let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about some of the major plot points that finish up the series and the highs and the lows of this great adaptation.
the spoiler zone. Okay, so we went into the spoiler zone talking about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So let's go ahead and start with that because I really liked the depiction of these embodiments of war, famine, pollution, and death rather than pestilence and death because apparently pestilence retired or something. <laughs> I don't know exactly what it was, but but this was something that could have easily been a little bit preachy in the way these characters were introduced, but thankfully they didn't go down that road. Right, and I think it was good. It almost acknowledges that we're going to update the four horsemen of the apocalypse to reflect present day issues. And, and I, I just thought it was brilliant. I think it was actually a little bit more Terry Pratchett kind of personifications than it was Neil Gaiman, but that's kind of cool that, that those, uh, that flavor got in there. But so we, we mentioned war before the break. We also meet famine who has this really cool idea of food, free food or something like that, where, there's no substance to it whatsoever. And there's even some kind of comment of, well, the shakes already don't have any food substance or something like that in any restaurant. But uh, the pollution was an interesting update because, you know, they could have gone with pestilence. Certainly disease still exists in the world, but pollution just was so wonderfully oozy and disgusting and standing by the river full of trash uh, it felt appropriate for the times, whereas maybe pestilence would have felt a little bit dated. But I, I keep seeing Aziraphale eating at one of those restaurants that has <laughs> the big plate and the tiny little. Yeah, he probably would have enjoyed some of yes. Famine's uh, French food. But death, of course, was also present uh, because that was a major character in Pratchett and Gaiman's novels. Conceptually very cool. Uh, it was very similar to the way it was presented in the book. But I think the only problem I had with the Four Horsemen was that they came together there at the end to set off the nuclear holocaust. And then they were kind of easily defeated. But I'll tell you, the more time that passes since I originally saw this miniseries, the more I come to appreciate the way in which Adam Young brings his three friends forward as opposing forces to the four horsemen. And I noticed things like the fact that Pepper is wearing a red raincoat that kind of mirrors uh, war's red attire. And Wensleydale is kind of prim and proper and scrawny like famine. And Brian is very much messy like pollution would be. So it's kind of cool that they come forward and say the opposing phrase, you know, I believe in peace. I believe in a clean environment. I believe in a healthy lunch <laughs> and they are defeated soundly by small children. Well, right. And again, what I also love is that we see the four horsemen approaching on motorcycles and dressed as you just said, and that's positioned against the four kids riding on their bicycles exactly uh it, it was just it was just a wonderful way to present that and and just the other stuff that you just mentioned just was icing on the cake right so i did i did have that grow on me over time i felt the defeat was rather quick but but the manner in which the kids were involved really kind of changed my mind on that but how did you feel about episode three? I am going to be skipping around a little bit as we talk about the overall impressions that we had about the miniseries. And episode three was really refreshing for me. A complete detour from the book in showing us the beginnings of 
the arrangement with the capital A between Aziraphale and Crowley, where they figure out that they might as well get along because all of their actions are canceling each other out anyway. <laughs> right. And, and I think this episode, not that I really read about it, but I would suspect that it hits viewers with either a love or hate yes. feeling yes. that oh, they're not really going anywhere. They're not pushing the story forward. It's just a lot of stuff that we don't need. And like you, I couldn't disagree more. I love the fact that we see virtually every step of the way to how they got to where they are today. And, and as you just mentioned, once they come to the realization that, look, everything we do cancels each other out. If one of us takes care of both sides, the other can have the day off. <laughs> exactly. And we see it through a lot of really cool time periods with really interesting costumes for both of the two actors. We see Roman times, medieval times, Elizabethan times, a really cool scene that was actually filmed in the Globe Theater, which is really kind of fun, has a cool story behind it. But what was interesting was that once they realize that they've got this bond, and I do think that the friendship between these two is really what carries this miniseries, much more so even than in the book, is this detail that comes out where Crowley realizes that if he gets caught doing this, he could really be in serious trouble, eternal torment. For Aziraphale, it would be a slap on the wrist. They would just be, stop doing that. But he could really have some serious consequences. So he asks Aziraphale to get him some holy water as protection. And I find it interesting that Aziraphale sees that as something that he could commit suicide with. Whereas, you know, I think we as the audience members and perhaps Crowley himself see it as a weapon he could use against his own kind. Uh, see, now I happen to tend to agree with Aziraphale that I felt like it was a way to avoid the horrific torture that he would have to experience if he is caught. So this is a way out of that. Like a cyanide pill for a spy? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yep. Well, that's interesting. So obviously that comes into play later, but I want to take a little bit of time to mention Newton Pulsifer and Anathema Device, because these two characters are very interesting in that you would think they wouldn't have anything to do with this, except from Anathema's perspective, observing the end times, being there for when it happens and knowing what's going to happen as it goes along. But Newton has an interesting plot that shows his importance. Number one, he discovers in his investigations with Sergeant Shadwell that this one area known as Tadfield always has the best weather for that time of year or the most typical weather for that time of year. And it's because Adam lives in Tadfield and is exercising his influence, even though he doesn't know it. So he has this idyllic childhood because of the power he has through his belief in everything. He can, he can just make it be the way he wants it. And I thought that was very insightful of Newton to find it. I, I don't even think Sergeant Shadwell thinks much of it at all, but he sends him up there anyway to find out what's going on up there. And that's what causes him to run into anathema who is completely expecting him to arrive and crash his car in front of her house, which I thought was kind of cool. <laughs> well, you know, the one thing I wonder about, and maybe it's just that I missed it, but do we get the sense that Adam wills the weather to be a certain way or whether it's just a boyish hope and desire the way every boy his age hopes for snow at Christmas? 
Oh, well, yeah, that's a very subtle distinction. But yeah, it could just be his boyish desires manifesting themselves. Right. Yeah, right. I, th- I think you're totally right about that. But what's interesting about these two, uh, Newton and Anathema, is that the two actors, Adria Arjona and Jack Whitehall, do have some really fiery chemistry, but it's all based on the fact that Agnes Nutter predicted that they would get together and even hook up. So o- Only one time, though. <laughs> that's right. So it's very weird that I think Anathema is, in a sense, kind of just going through the motions because she knows that this is going to happen. And enjoying herself, certainly, but maybe not expecting to actually fall in love with him. And that's exactly what happens, which, you know, obviously steers her life in a completely different direction. Because after the crisis is averted and a new volume of prophecies shows up, you know, he asks her, do you want to live your life as a descendant or do you want to just live life like the rest of us? And she burns the book. So she has to live her own life now. And I thought that was a very touching way to kind of infer what what's going to happen later right and i mean a personal breakthrough that i don't know that it could be anything more meaningful and impactful exactly and of course newton also is key in stopping the four horsemen of the apocalypse as well by breaking the computer by trying to fix it in the airfield great touch exactly but anathema herself also i think influences things to a degree she doesn't realize just by influencing Adam, who she does not realize is the Antichrist because her methods, her witchy methods of trying to detect him don't work because Adam is completely undetectable, even to angel and demon kind, much less to a witch. But she still actually plays a part by giving him those new Aquarian magazines where he gets all these tabloid-esque ideas about the world, new agey. And the power of his belief makes things happen with Atlantis rising up from the ocean floor and Tibetans tunneling under the the surface of the earth. And he even causes a nuclear power plant to continue cranking out power. But in place of the fissionable material, there's just a single lemon drop sitting in there. And he doesn't even realize again that he's doing it. But because he's 11 now and his hellhound has arrived, it's really starting to affect him more and more. And it's kind of interesting. I kind of was wondering what was going to happen once he realizes he does control everything. He wants to reset the world. Humans have made a mess of it, but he alienates his friends by forcing them to see it his way. And I thought that was going to be irreparable where he would have to join the four horsemen because his friends from Tadfield weren't playing along. Well, well, you know, I think the one thing that I find so fascinating here is that it's not just humans, it's adults right, that have mucked up the world. Exactly. And so as kids, they are free from that. They're unsullied. <laughs> so they're the perfect candidates to stop it, right? Another nice Game of Thrones reference. Oh, the unsullied. <laughs> yeah. But... uh he obviously does realize that, okay, I have to let them be free and not control them. But as soon as they're free, they walk away. We want nothing to do with you. That causes him to scream at the top of his lungs and come to realize that he does have to stop this. He can't let it happen. He knows exactly what's up at this point. He's fully awakened. And uh, they head to the airfield and, and they have that great scene that I mentioned earlier. But 
the other people that obviously have to play some part in all this is Crowley and Aziraphale themselves. And both of them have very creative ways of getting there. I love that Crowley does end up using that holy water to avoid his colleagues. And Aziraphale, even though he's been discorporated by Sergeant Shadwell by mistake, (laughs) is still able to get there in the body of Madam Tracy during that wonderful seance scene. And so everybody, even the most minor characters, like what would Madam Tracy be doing there otherwise, make it to Tadfield just in time for the final confrontation. But it's interesting that, again, going off book a bit here, Gabriel and Beelzebub show up to tell Adam that he's got to finish this great plan. And the wording is very, very specific here because it takes a couple of times of, of Gabriel referring to the great plan that he's got to start the war between the angels and the demons that Aziraphale realizes, wait, you said great plan, but is it the ineffable plan? Exactly. (laughs) Because he's been referring to this ineffable plan with Crowley all along. And I think Crowley also realizes that they don't know these chief demon and angel that have come to get things going again don't actually know if God doesn't have maybe a different plan and that this all is unfolding exactly the way it's supposed to. Hence the word ineffable. (laughs) Exactly. So another epilogue that does not happen in the book that I thought was brilliant for this miniseries is Crowley and Aziraphale avoiding punishment by switching places. They get that one last prophecy from Agnes Nutter and are able to cause their fellow demons and angels to think that they are now immune from holy water and from hellfire because of this deal that they've made. And maybe they should just be left alone. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't see that coming, but I love it nonetheless. Yeah. And what a great ending with Adam Young having everyone forget that it ever happened. Anathema and Newton don't even remember if they saved the world or not. And they kind of leave it open-ended with Pepper asking Adam, so when do you think they're going to let you out again? And he said, oh, not for years and years and years. And that phrase says to me that maybe he was interpreting her question as when are they going to let the Antichrist out again? When is Armageddon going to happen again? So that then when she asks, well, when can you come and play? He says, oh, well, they'll forget it by tomorrow. So it seems contradictory, but it almost as if he was answering a different question the first time. And I thought that was just thematically and symbolically very cool uh, to end the miniseries with just very profound. It's just so Neil Gaiman. (laughs) Exactly. And I love an open-ended ending as much as the next guy, but to combine it with the happy ending that everyone gets is a really cool move. So really cool. And if you haven't checked out good omens on Amazon prime, you definitely have to give it a shot. It's only six episodes and it's one and done. It's not like there's going to be a season two on this one. That's right. So kind of like that's kind of refreshing. (laughs) Well, what do we got coming up next on the podcast next Sunday? All right, Mike, we are going to talk about maybe not the best examples of world building and genre television, but certainly some that have caught our eyes and caught our attention. And I think we're going to have a lot of fun talking about this one. Yeah, this one was suggested to us by listener Taltos, who has given us a couple discussion topics over the three years that Sci-Fi Fidelity has been on the air. 
So we're really looking forward to this discussion and to our listener contributions to it. So keep an eye out on the Facebook group for the discussion that's ongoing, and we'll share those answers on the podcast. But that's going to be it for this episode of Sci-Fi Fidelity. Keep the discussion going on social media. You can follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US, and we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. And in the meantime, we'd love it if you could rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. Be sure to send us your suggestions for future topics on social media or via email to sci-fi fidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>